Thank you. Right. Good evening, everyone. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And welcome to the Mint, quickly becoming one of our favourite Sydney venues for a, for a nice, uh, smaller, more intimate uh, event. And of course, the Mint stands on the land whose traditional owners are the Gadigal, uh, part of the Aura Nation. We acknowledge and pay respect to them. And of course, the University of Sydney, home of the US Study Centre, also stands on the, ancestral, on the ancestral lands of the Gadigal people. Tonight, we're here to launch a new report by the Centre's Program on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, titled Bringing Industry to Airports, How the US Experience Can Help Western Sydney Take Off. Now, the Centre's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program uh, is supported by the New South Wales Government, uh, with the charge to examine innovation in the American economy and what lessons learned, both positive and negative, might promote economic development and prosperity here in Australia and, of course, New South Wales in particular. And so with that mandate, the Centre's Program on Innovation and Entrepreneurship has generated a lot of research on factors that promote and inhibit innovation and firm growth, comparing the United States and Australia on, on those metrics of innovation and, and firm growth, uh, in this venue last year, we launched a report on AgTech, uh, a landmark study, um, one of the few deep dives on that nascent industry in Australia. Again, with the we're a US study centre, so no surprise, the US comparison figuring prominently in that, but with a special emphasis on the role of venture capital in that sector. And of course, second airports have been a big area of focus for us too, and indeed, tonight's report is our second foray into this domain. Our first report looked at the general policy settings that help make second airports a success. And of course, the US has many examples of second airports, New York, Washington, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. But the report we're launching tonight, bringing industry to airports, looks more specifically at the question of airports as industry clusters. Specifically, this report answers the question, what kinds of businesses thrive from being adjacent to a modern airport? What's the optimal sequence of governmental and commercial commitments that enable that? And given the long time horizons involved when you're talking about something as enormous as an airport, what are the nascent or just over the horizon industries that you ought to be thinking about as you, as you go down that pathway towards creating what we're calling out there in Western Sydney, an aerotropolis. We're honoured tonight to have the Honourable Stuart Ayres, New South Wales Minister for Jobs, Investment, Tourism and Western Sydney, here to launch the report. And given that list of portfolios, um, it's pretty clear that Minister Ayres' responsibilities form something of a cluster themselves, centred on Sydney Airport being right at the heart of that particular configuration, that particular cluster of, of responsibilities. And of course, Minister Ayres has represented Penrith in the New South Wales Legislative Assembly since 2010, and Western Sydney has been part of his ministerial brief since 2013, so we're delighted to have the Minister with us tonight to help the US Study Centre launch this report. Please join me in welcoming the Minister. Thank you. It's good to be here. A uh, good opportunity to blow out the cobwebs as a new portfolio it gets allocated to myself post the changeover 
of ministers and the new government being elected. Uh, but for me, particularly when it comes to the launch of this report, it's a continuation of what has been uh, a fairly, almost a lifelong passion around making sure that Western Sydney has global access to fantastic jobs. Um, and one of the big changes that's happened in the political landscape across, particularly out of Western Sydney, has been the change that the community has as it considers the long-term impact of a second airport in its community. I can say that when I first got involved in politics, the idea of an airport in Western Sydney was politically toxic. Um, when I first got elected to parliament, it was whatever the category just below toxic is. Uh, and we've since moved it over the last 10 years to be something that's seen as a strong and positive investment in the community that delivers not just an economic dividend, but also has the capacity to deliver a social one as well. And I think the single biggest shift or that has allowed the community to change its mindset, its views about the benefits of an airport has been its strong economic benefit, the opportunity to create new jobs, to create jobs of the future close to where people live. Um, not only am I the Minister for Western Sydney or the Minister that's responsible uh, from a New South Wales perspective around uh, delivering that economic benefit in the area around the airport, I'm also the person who lives closest to the airport site. Um, from my front door to the front door of the airport as the crow flies is probably about four kilometres. Uh, so I drive past that airport site every single day. One of the things the New South Wales Government created last year was the new Western City and Aerotropolis Authority. And that came out of what I thought was a groundbreaking piece of work across three tiers of government, the City Deal, which actually started life as a federal government policy around uh, investing and working across three tiers of government that was set up by the Turnbull Government. Uh, and its genesis came out of a policy position in the north of England when it was about trying to reinvigorate northern England mining towns. Um, I'd like to think what we've done with the Western Sydney City deal is something truly special. Uh, and it's also brought together three tiers of government in a way that we haven't seen before. The idea of having the Commonwealth and state government sitting around the table with the leadership of eight local councils. Um, most of my colleagues thought I was crazy when I proposed this idea that we could actually make this work. Uh, but we now meet every quarter, um, almost monthly general managers are meeting we have 38 key deliverables across the city deal, and one of those was the establishment of the Aerotropolis Authority, which we now have in place. The chair of the Aerotropolis Authority is Jennifer Westacott, um, and other, um, one other notable mem member, considering what's uh, been put in this report tonight, is uh, the former chief of the Defence Force, uh, Air Chief Marshal Mark. Binskin is also a board member. We've got other members across different sectors uh, that are represented on that board. And Sam Sankster, the former CEO of Health Infrastructure, has been set up as the CEO for that Aerotropolis Authority. And as I was uh, reading through parts of Justin's report, one of the things that really stood out for me was the need to make airports attractive to industry, to really be able to create the clustering of education, of research, 
technology and new businesses around airports because that is exactly the purpose that we set up the Western Sydney Aerotropolis Authority for. Uh, we've taken an area of around 11,000 hectares uh, immediately surrounding uh, the 1,700 hectares of the airport and given a clear mandate to the Aerotropolis Authority to activate that precinct. We've also seen a massive amount of public investment into infrastructure to connect the airport site, whether it's road uh, and rail, uh, driving the, that connectivity to make sure that the airport is well connected to already established economic centres like Penrith and Liverpool. Um, so the Aerotropolis Authority is well placed to take some of the learnings that Justin refers to uh, in this airport, in this report. Um, one of the other um, recommendations and, and case studies that's referred to, and I know you've got representatives from this sector on the panel, is talking about the way in which agriculture and ag tech and intensive agriculture can really be enhanced by the establishment of an airport in outer western Sydney. Uh, and if you think about the change of communities uh, in this part of Sydney, it's, uh, it's really a circle of life in many respects. A lot of the land use that took place uh, in this part of Sydney was market farms. It was small farms that produced uh, small amounts of food to largely feed Sydney. And now as urban uh, development has taken place and modernisation of technology, types of uh, urban development has changed, those market farms have been pushed out and the land use is changing. But the need for agriculture and the utilising the benefits and the competitive advantage that we have in agriculture can still be activated in Western Sydney. Uh, and if you think about the intensive agriculture opportunities as well as the connectivity to the world through an airport, there's some really profound uh, opportunities for growth that exist there. Um, one of the interesting recommendations is around how you create uh, clearance for agricultural produce here in Australia before it goes and accesses its international market. And I think that's a, um, one of the things that really stood out for me when I was looking through this report. Um, the other area that I think is, uh, uh, it's, it's obvious, right, the opportunity to draw out of defence and aerospace as a real driver of jobs. Uh, and I think it's critically important, and Justin also notes this as a, as a key opportunity for Australia, to move out of the, the maintenance regime around aerospace and actually move further to the end or up the value chain and getting into... Uh, uh, advanced manufacturing and really leveraging out of the relationships that Australia has internationally. Uh, I was just, Mike was just saying from uh, Northrop Grumman earlier uh, that there's already established relationships that exist between organisations like Northrop Grumman in the United States and their Australian business and another establishment partner in the Aerotropolis Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. So we're seeing uh, the opportunity for collaboration across these sectors already happening uh, through the early stage investment in the Aerotropolis. I, I think it's critically important that um, Reports like what Justin has produced continue to form our thinking. Um, we are at the cutting edge of public policy when it comes to bringing three tiers of government together. We've never built a second airport in Australia. I think when, we, when you say that out loud, we've never actually established a second serious airport in a metropolitan basin that's going to function at the same scale and size as the first airport. And how do we bring lessons and learnings from overseas? Um, the other, I think the other components that exist in, in Justin's report are around the case studies, around how you can look at what's taken place, 
particularly in the United States around uh, investment attraction and growing industries. Uh, I think one of the real challenges that will exist for Australian governments is what does the incentive payment look like? Um, is the incentive payment uh, come in the form of, of uh, special economic zones, uh, taxation offsets, uh, or, or are you really looking at trying to generate a lower cost entry point through uh, increased investment from the state and federal governments around uh, trunk infrastructure to make those early stage and establishment startup costs lower or de-risk that investment. Um, one thing I can say is that we're on a very long journey and I think a lot of the things that Justin highlights in his report is that this is not just from one election cycle to the next or just the establishment and starting of the airport. The long-term objective for the New South Wales government is to create jobs closer to where people live. And if we're thinking about a public policy investment that's going to go 20, 30 or 40 years into the future, we can't just be thinking about the creation of jobs that exist today. We have to be thinking about how we set up that precinct uh, to be able to create jobs into the future. Um, the convergence of research and education, uh, public policy to drive investment and genuine land use planning that creates a precinct that attracts industry around an airport is the sole focus for me in that Western Sydney portfolio through the Aerotropolis. And Justin's report highlights many learnings uh, from a market, the United States, that has done this many, many times before. Some good, some bad. Justin, thank you very much for your work and I look forward to hearing more through the course of the night. Thank you, Minister, and um, thank you for your service to the people of New South Wales and Western Sydney in particular. The running order now is as follows. Um, Justin um, will deliver the author's report, uh, will deliver a summary of the report with a, with a, a 15 minute presentation or so, touching on scope, findings and, and the recommendations that the Minister's already alluded to a few of those. And then at that point, Claire McFarland, um, Director of the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at the US Study Centre, will lead a discussion uh, with Justin. But as, as the Minister also alluded to, we're joined tonight by Mike Gallagher, uh, Strategy Director for Northrop Grumman Australia, uh, Serena Lee, Director and Co-Founder of Farmwall, uh, a very innovative ag tech startup, uh, and, and Simon Ringer, uh, Professor of Materials Science and Engineering at the University of Sydney. So that will follow immediately after Justin's presentation. Justin, the floor is yours. Thank you again for helping the US Study Centre. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you, Minister. Um, you stole a lot of the good content from the, uh, from the piece, so you're gonna hear this all again. Um, but it's good to see um, not only a minister who's clearly read and been briefed on the report, but obviously um, it didn't come as fresh thinking and clearly a lot of the contents had already been thought about by the department and by its predecessors. So, um, and I think this is one of the points that we make in the report is that actually the, the will of both the New South Wales but also the Australian governments to make this happen is definitely there. And now what we need to identify is some of those lessons learned from the US, in particular because it's the US Study Center, um, about how to actually make it work. So, um, and this is, again, this is summarized in, in the key points, which is actually attracting the right companies to relocate or establish significant presences in the Badgerys Creek Aerotropolis, as it was called, will be challenging. Um, and I don't think anybody doubts that. 
But um, industry attraction like this has actually been long been a feature of the US. Um, and some of it, as the minister alluded to, um, is financial, um, especially dating back to the 70s. Um, but also there are some other things around industry clusters um, in various um, cities around the US and in a different model um, in Western Europe um, that actually can, can actually have some lessons for the establishment of the Aerotropolis uh, here in Sydney, Western Sydney. Um, when we looked at US industry clusters, we actually, um, the Brookings Institute have probably done the, the, the most advanced research on this. Um, and it can actually be boiled down to something simpler than these eight points, which is a, a triple helix, a sort of holy trinity, if you like, of research establishments, uh, industry, and also government. So all those three parties working in tandem, which is really... Um, so, but brought it down even further, and this is the Brookings Institute going to eight points, um, you need that you need that density of highly skilled workers, um, and this is has been one of the challenges um, for Australia because obviously the density exists in the um, east east coast capital cities, um, and doesn't really exist yet um, anywhere else. But Western Sydney is actually the highest growth area um, in the country and could have a population of over two million, um, depending on how you define it, um, by the time the airport opens. Um, Focusing on a region's core competency. So some of the case studies in the, in the paper look at some unusual things, such as um, the, the establishment of business jets as a, as, a, as a very niche part of the aerospace industry in Wichita, because actually three of the largest manufacturers of private jets were in Wichita. So it actually made sense to pool their resources in one area. And finding those niches um, will be a, a key part of, of um, the success of Western Sydney Aerotropolis. Number three is in ensuring a research culture. This goes back to that role that academia and university has to play in actually prov providing the right graduates um, for the jobs of the future. I mean, and we were talking to, to Mark earlier, and, and he was saying that as they move, as Northrop Grumman moves to the next stage, they need very, very smart people, but they need the right sort of smart people with the right qualifications. And this is where particularly um, look at some states in the US, um, North Carolina, with the Research um, Triangle Park, um, regenerated a previously, so South Carolina was um, in the 50s, the second poorest state in, in the union um, and declining. Um, and so the governor then actually created a Research Triangle between three of the universities and put in and in put incentives to in, encourage people like IBM um, to that triangle because of all the graduates. Yeah, so they had the universities, they didn't have the jobs. Um, number four is the build the business capabilities. So this is again, this is this is encouraging business to actually have the right building blocks for, to capitalize on those skilled people. So th these are sort of cascading down. Um, ensuring demand for the region's products. This is the core capability of people like Austrade, you know, to actually, when the products are built in Australia, to actually ensure that they're um, marketed in export, in export markets, to ensure that there is actually that double side of supply and demand. Um, access to funding. This is, as I'm going to touch on later, one of the key areas where the US is probably uh, exceptional to other parts of the world um, in its prolific but also open use um, of subsidies at a local, state and federal level, um, which Australia has a patchier um, response to. Um, infrastructure provision, this is, th this 
point seven is actually where the um, state and federal governments should very definitely be commended because these are the building blocks that have been put in place from day one of Badgerby's Creek, which is ensuring that all of the, the road and rail provisions are there for high um, volume uh, export. Um, and it goes beyond that. I mean, you know, the, the, the size of the, of the Aerotropolis proposed in Western Sydney really meets this, it it's, follows the sort of Dallas-Fort Worth model in a way of actually building it from scratch, but building it absolutely sort of perfect would probably be stretching it, but building it with the right um, infrastructure in place for industry from day one, because Sydney Airport is never built for export. Um, and then regulatory environment. So, you know, this is obviously something that Australia excels at. It can, it can place a high... Um, cost on business, the regulatory environment here, but it gives safety and security to, to companies willing to invest. So the, number eight is already a tick for, um, for, for Western Sydney, and so is seven, but some of the other stuff needs to be built on. Um, so we identified, um, so looking at the Aerotropolis um, and Western Sydney, uh, Western Sydney City deal, we, we identified three um, high-tech industries which actually have growth potential for Western Sydney. Um, the, the goal really is to create a cluster around Western Sydney Airport where talented workers graduate from universities on site and go on to develop new products that are manufactured and exported right within the confines of the new precinct itself. And the industries we chose are almost um, in reverse order. Aerospace manufacturing is probably the hardest but the highest value. Um, aeroponic, um, which is, I'll explain a bit more, but and we have a, an expert with us as well, but um, high-intensity um, vertical um, hydroponic farms that are growing um, fruit and vegetables for export in sterile conditions. Um, and then medical devices. Medical devices probably is the easiest um, in some ways because Australia already has a, um, a $2 billion export market and... Um, the, um, the devices are not price sensitive. So these are the three, three ones we, we looked at. To look in more detail, so aerospace, um, the reason I say it's the biggest challenge is because actually um, Australia doesn't have any um, aerospace company in the top 100 um, globally of aerospace manufacturers. In fact, and um, we picked up on a tiny word um, that should be in, in the report earlier, it has no, it doesn't have the headquarters of any tier one, two or three um, aerospace companies. People like Northrop and Boeing are obviously here, but it's not actually the, and by tier one, two and three, what we mean is tier one are the primes who actually do the final assembly of an aircraft, uh, and then it goes down into sort of um, sub-assemblies and, 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 um, and so forth. We in Australia only have tier four and below, which is, which is maintenance, procurement, overhaul, sustainment, but also some really advanced stuff like cabling and really bespoke components, but they're not integrated into the supply chain in a way that manufacturers in Japan and Western Europe are, and even sort of some parts of Latin America. Um, and as a result, um, and also as a result of things like certification issues, um, SMEs um, in Australia have a poor access to global um, supply chains, and I should put a disclosure, disclosure here. I'm also on the board of the um, Aviation Aerospace Association of Australia, and at that association, we deal with this challenge all the time of having to get certification 
from EASA, the European um, Safety Agency or FAA, to even inspect parts that are manufactured here. So that's a, that's a real problem. But there is a lot of goodwill and energy around this sector um, in, in Australia, and certainly things like a planned aerospace campus for Western Sydney Airport, things like the anchor tenant of Northrop Grumman being announced. And these are all positive signs. Um, there, is, there are still challenges as outlined, and also the challenge of a split market. So actually, Southeast Queensland already has a fairly well-established aerospace sector. Victoria, and then South Australia has a well-ingrained um, defence manufacturing um, industry. So actually, the challenges for Western Sydney aren't only those, but they're also attracting it from other states. But what I alluded to earlier about Wichita gives you some example of how um, places, uh, how cities in America could actually play to their strengths and if New South Wales needs to find a niche. So actually, if you look at the top 10 aerospace towns in the US, actually the biggest by number is Seattle. But this, what this graph shows here is actually by specialization. So 18.4, 18.8% 18 of um, advanced workers in Wichita work in aerospace. So actually as a, as a niche, um, so Wichita, Kansas, is actually the most highly specialized city in the US in terms of aer aerospace manufacturer. And the reason being because there was this um, sort of buccaneering entrepreneur, Bill Lear, who bought um, Swiss fighter jets and decided to make, turn them into business jets, and, or you know, private jets, and people thought he was crazy. But the people of Wichita, Kansas, said, well, actually, it might just work, and we'll give you some money to try it. And as a result, the Learjet was born and became synonymous with private jets for 30 years. Um, but they couldn't have done that in Wichita without Beechcraft and and, uh, and Cessna already being there, already being in that sort of private aircraft niche. So the, really the lesson there for New South Wales is actually to find a niche, and it could be unmanned vehicles or it could be something else, and do that really well rather than trying to be a generalist. Taking the next uh, sector, Aeroponic food or uh, high-intensity um, hydroponic, uh, we'll get a bet better definition later. But um, again, the challenges are there that actually, despite being an agriculture-heavy country, actually fresh food and vegetables account for a tiny percentage of the, um, of the agricultural produce exported by Australia. Um, only 1.2% of, of global fruit exports are um, from uh, Australia, and even less of vegetables. Compare this to a country like Netherlands, which actually has about 35% of global exports of fruit and vegetables come from the Netherlands. And Netherlands produces 10 times as much fruit and vegetables as the United States, despite being less than a tenth of the size. And the answer is because ringed around um, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam are um, these vertical sort of hydroponic plants where things are grown under um, hot houses, conditions and lights with sterile soil and so forth. And they're exported just in time markets for Europe. Um, so this is really one of the opportunities to invest in these sort of groundbreaking technology. And we've looked at some examples in the US. So in Colorado, um, I think this is the next slide actually, but um, so I'll just quickly do these and I'll go on to the case study. But, um, Freshness is prized, so already China is a major export market for um, Australian fruit and vegetables, uh, sorry, for Australian agriculture, and that could be also for, um, for fruit and veg. 
But we, when we looked at um, what they're doing in the US, as I said, Netherlands is probably the world leader. But in the US, you have, again, you've got the states that you'd expect to spend on ag tech, California, Massachusetts, New York. And a lot of this is going into precision farming, broad acre farming, and really modernizing traditional agriculture. But then you've got Colorado, a relatively small by population state, comes actually fourth in the table of ag tech investment. And virtually all of this is in some of this fields around uh, aeroponics or hydroponics. And in fact, they use some of the skills that they used growing illicit cannabis um, and made it mainstream and actually in, and invested in some of this um, technology to actually bring this new industry to life. And one of the problems they were solving was that 97% of leafy greens uh, in Colorado were actually trucked in from California, which you know seemed madness. Um, and Colorado is a fairly progressive state as well, so they wanted to live locally. So this is, again, you can find more details in the, in the paper about Colorado's experience, but it does show again that actually not looking at traditional, but looking at um, more innovative solutions in ag tech could actually be the way forward for New South Wales. Uh, medical devices. Um, this seems, as I said, to, in some ways to be the easiest because there's over 600 exporting companies already in Australia um, exporting high-tech medical devices, $2 billion industry. Um, and the other thing about... Um, uh, medical devices is that they're not price sensitive. You know, this is a market which actually benefits high labor cost uh, markets to make. So Liechtenstein, for example, um, one of the highest um, con uh, salaries in the world, but leads the world in, in dental implants, um, for example. But the problem here is actually, Australia actually has a poor reputation for commercialization of its research, and the US Study Center's written quite uh, quite a few papers on this. In terms of punching below its weight, Australia sadly does. Lots of things are actually invented here, and the CSIRO is sometimes referred to as the patent's graveyard, but virtually nothing is ever, not virtually nothing, but the rate of commercialization versus invention is, is, is poor. Uh, the, you know, the federal government has looked at this, and it's on the agenda, but it is, does count against um, Australia in this regard. Um, that being said, there have been some very significant things, uh, medical devices invented and patented here. Cochlear Im implant, ultrasound scanners, uh, bifocal um, contact lenses. So invention is possible, but v versus the rest of the OECD, um, Australia has a poor record in R&D spending even by companies. So it's just not ingrained in, in the culture in a way, but that is more of a federal um, issue than, than state. Um, but again, we've picked, picked something quite specific to look at, which is additive printing. And additive printing in layman's terms is 3D printing um, using um, hyper-precise alloys to actually make very precision parts. And this is used um, in defense for printing um, uh, bespoke parts on the battlefield. But actually, some of that's translated from aerospace, again, into medical devices. Because actually, sometimes in medical devices, you need one-off, unique parts to fit, a, uh, fit someone's body. And again, these have to be produced in ultra-sterile, ultra-complex uh, conditions, but they can be exported right away. I mean, there's, there's already companies in, in Melbourne backed by GE um, Aviation that actually export bits of skulls and stuff to, to hospitals in Europe, which are built to demand, but they're very time-sensitive. 
And again, there's a role here for the, um, for the federal government in actually ensuring that, again, the US leads the world in actually trying to regulate some of the trade in, in these um, medical devices printed by additive printing. Australia could follow that lead, and then the establishment of some of these, these 3D printing plants in Badgerys Creek for rapid export could actually take place. But again, it's a, there's some regulatory hurdles to overcome. Um, we looked at, so in looking at the benefits, we looked actually at Minneapolis, which uh, in many ways um, is, is kind of un-American, um, in that many of the um, founding fathers of Minneapolis um, are, are Scandinavian, and they have a much more Scandinavian approach to business um, in terms of giving back and sort of social cohesion. And one of the companies we looked at was actually um, Medtronic, and its problem um, was how do we ensure that our workers are fairly paid and and that their workers actually gain from the that we gain as a as a cooperative um, in the work that we do. So, and they went on to be um, the the world's largest medical device manufacturer. Um, they invented the the pacemaker. Um, and then lots of associated things. But the lesson for Australia is that you don't have to sacrifice um, low pay for export opportunities. Um, and if you look at what's happened in Minneapolis is that you have medical devices being um, the fourth largest, uh, so Minneapolis is the fourth largest center for medical device manufacture in the US, but actually there are all of these indirect jobs created uh, by the sector, even in things like jewellery manufacturing, which actually uses some of the same precision parts. But, you know, more obviously, there are things like plastics and production technology. All of these jobs all come because the conditions are right for medical devices. So that's the report in, in some summary. Uh, but the surprising thing that we found, which the minister did allude to, is the, um, in the US, is the, is the openness to talk about um, subsidies. I mean, there was actually a bidding war, as you probably read, um, to have the headquarters, the second headquarters of Amazon. And in the end, Virginia ended up stumping up $750 million, um, which was all public and above board. And this attraction um, through, um, through, through government funds, job buying or pork barreling or whatever you want to call it, um, depending if you want a positive or negative slant, um, is commonplace in the US. Um, and in 1976, um, Volkswagen were looking for uh, an overseas plant, and Pennsylvania actually bid essentially $100 million in tax breaks to acquire the Volkswagen plant. And then this led to a trickle effect of other foreign automotive manufacturers actually seeking and getting similar deals from other state governments. And... Um, what this table here shows, and we've got a longer list in the paper, is the, the, the quantum, really, of, of some of these deals. Now, some of them are fairly uncontroversial, um, leaving aside World Trade Organization. Boeing, for example, um, receives an enormous amount of subsidy through various, through, well, through over 1,500 different awards. That, but that does actually deliver quite a big bang for its buck in terms of job creation. And then there are some others, like number nine, Chenier Energy down in Louisiana, which actually are probably more contentious in the number of jobs it created versus the, the amount the state government actually had to pay. Um, and we go into some detail in, in, the, um, in the paper about some of the pitfalls that Rhode Island is another one that, that 
did a spectacularly bad deal. Um, but it is still much more prevalent and much more open um, in the US. And I suppose that's kind of one of the, the main things that we, that we found. Um, so uh, um, again, the, the minister has stolen my thunder and has already said the recommendations, but I'll go through them again. Um, so yes, this pre-clearance work, so in the export of, of, um, of agricultural goods, this has actually been trialed by um, New Zealand to try and get stone fruits actually cleared for customs at the time of, um, of, the time of picking. Um, and that's a trial that New Zealand has, and Australia's looking at something similar for South Korea. But actually, it's within the federal government's remit, and they've, they've looked at this in Toowoomba in, um, in Queensland to, to pre-clear beef. Um, that's a trial which hasn't yet taken place, but is being thought about. Um, by the, um, th there are barriers in the way of, of you know, various countries put up photosanitary requirements as a proxy for, for trade uh, barriers. But if there was a good enough, if there was a will there to actually get um, products cleared at time of production through sterile environments, actually that could open up huge opportunities for um, horticultural exports. The next um, recommendation, which I think I touched on earlier, is this um, work, again, at a federal level um, around ensuring that global guidelines for, um, for medical devices, that actually um, some of this new pioneering work around additive manufacturing is actually that Australia is one of the pioneers in passing uh, Therapeutic Goods Administration, passing some regulations and guidelines, which then allow those goods to be exported. And this is really an emerging sort of field. Um, the US Federal Drug Administration, I think, is the first country in the world to actually do those guidelines. So Australia could be the second, um, although I think Israel is about to publish its. Um, the third recommendation is really to, uh, and we're going to discuss this on the panel a bit more, but is, is how do we actually move aerospace manufacturing you know, from uh, sort of a supplier of a supplier of a supplier level to being higher up the value chain. Um, this is, that's more complex because obviously we're a long way from the main markets. Um, but there are, again, some things at a regulatory level around certification and mutual recognition of certification that can be done. Um, but then the, the, the fourth one is, is, um, is trickier, really, which is that last point about subsidies. There is an expectation especially in US firms, to, to kind of, you know, show me the color of your money. And unless, and this is really at the state level, you know, so how, how do we make those deals either more explicit or even if they're done behind closed doors, which is more likely the case in, in Australia, you know, how do we ensure that they are globally competitive in order to attract, you know, and that could be land um, tax write-offs, it could be payroll tax write-offs. Whatever that combination is, we need to make sure that New South Wales and Australia is competitive. And that is it. So you don't need to re read the report now, but if you do, you will have a copy. We're going to have a discussion um, really focused on the future opportunities around, um, around this. This has been a great report. Um, to add to it, we've um, invited. Um, I'll sit there. You sit over there. <laughs> <laughs> Silly. Um, so, 
So let me introduce the panel to you. So Justin, you've, you've already heard from. Justin um, is the author of this report and is a, um, a non-resident fellow with the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at the um, US Study Centre. Um, Simon pointed to me before, but for those of you who, who didn't see me sitting over there in the corner, I'm Claire McFarland and I, um, I lead the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program um, at the US Study Centre. Justin is um, one of our very valuable um, external uh, non-resident fellows, um, and as Simon mentioned, uh, this is his second report that he has um, that he's um, written for us. Um, uh, to uh, uh, next, to Justin is Professor Simon Ringer, who is from the University of Sydney and is has has two hats really. He's the academic director of core research facilities at the University of Sydney. He's also a professor of material science and engineering in the School of Aerospace, Mechanical, and Mechatronic Engineering, and is an expert in additive. Um, manufacturing, and so it's going to be great to, to hear his perspective on things. Um, we also have Serena Lee, who is co-founder of indoor vertical farming startup Farmwall. And um, the first question that I'm going to um, ask Serena specifically to answer is around the differences between aeroponic, aquaponic, hydroponic. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, and next to me is um, Mike Gallagher, who's the strategy director for Defence Industry Prime Northrop Grumman in Australia. And so welcome everybody. And um, I'm going to, um, the format is I'm going to ask some questions um, and then you guys will get the opportunity to ask some questions of the panellists. So, um, and, and what I wanted to really focus on as part of this discussion is around, given that the airport is coming into its operational phase in 2026, I wanted to have a bit of a discussion about what do the future opportunities look like? And, um, and so that's really my first question is, is um, you know, to take advantage of this proximity to the airport and the focus that the New South Wales government has had in these particular industries that, that Justin has spoken about, what do these industries look like over the medium term? What do, Simon, I'll start with you. What does advanced manufacturing look like over this kind of medium term horizon from your sure, perspective? thank you, Claire, yeah, thank you. Um, well, certainly manufacturing is really changing before our very eyes in a really profound way, uh, scientifically and, and technologically. Uh, and uh, it's been uh, touched on already that uh, this uh, idea of additive ways of making things where we can take tiny pieces of matter and pulse energy very locally and fuse them together, right? It's a totally different way of making things. We can then build up structures into shapes that we could have never considered that we could build, uh, and we can build these up sort of bottom up, layer by layer. And, you know, the uh, human beings um, pretty much know all they need to know about the elements on the periodic table, but if you even just think about the combinations of two elements on the periodic table, we haven't explored all of those. Think about the combinations of three elements, four and beyond, right? So suddenly the explorer space uh, gets uh, very exciting, uh, scientifically, technologically, uh, etc. And so the factory of the future is a very interesting place because now we've got, uh, and, and Australia has, has a terrific opportunity uh, to, uh, to, to really uh, succeed with this notion of a factory of the future. Um, we're going to be doing new kinds of materials. Um, we're not bound, you know, you, you talked about the qualification issues. Uh, well, we're ha we have to reinvent how to qualify materials mm -hmm. in, uh, in an advanced manufacturing um, paradigm. Um, we're going to be uh, using AI kind of algorithms to help us to do that. There's going to be uh, a lot of uh, autonomous systems in here. Um, and so 
they're all things that actually Australia's uh, pretty primed. And of course, um, to finish there, you know, when you look at all of the reports that the big consulting firms are putting out about additive manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, the only argument is to how many trillion dollars is this going to yeah. be worth in, in, in the next 10 years. So yeah. a lot of changes are happening. Yeah. Serena, from your perspective, um, what is, and I, I mean, I've had the opportunity to see the, um, one of your farm walls um, here in the city when it was here as a pop-up. Um, what's your perspective on the future of agriculture and what it looks like? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a great question that we often ask ourselves because agriculture is, is changing very rapidly and in the face of some of the world's biggest challenges with climate change, and just unpredictable weather. Also, the, the value of the land keeps getting higher and higher in these outer city areas. And yeah, as, as, we, as we keep developing and we need to be replacing that horizontal traditional farming land with something. So ag tech, is, it holds a lot of potential to be a, a real support mechanism for growing industries because of the export market possibilities as well, which is a huge opportunity mm. with this with this particular case, but also just from a from a broader perspective of produce that is more reliable, it's more efficient, it's grown faster, it can be the cost can be brought down cheaper, we can start collecting much more data and then using that to really support farmers as well and and also from a from a health and nutrition perspective as well it's it's really important that as these as these economies are growing and as the aerotropolis really takes off that we have enough food to tap into the potential export market in Asia for one but also be resilient and sustainable enough to feed all of the people and the predicted population growth that Western Sydney is going to have through through this development. Serena, can you explain for everybody here what the farm wall looks like and how it works? Yeah, Just briefly. I wish, yeah. I wish we had some pictures. Yeah, I should, yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's, it's quite a visual spectacle. So our, our flagship design is called a farm wall and it's a unit that's about the size of a, of a bookcase. It's two metres tall by about one metre wide. Um, it's got four tiers of growing levels and at the bottom there is a fish tank. So it uses the principles of aquaponics to grow microgreens, which are a very high value, high nutrition food product. So how aquaponics works is fish produce waste, and then that waste is transformed into nutrients that are absorbed by the plants. And the plants take out everything they need, and then they return the water back to the fish. So it's a highly efficient mm -hmm. method of farming because all of the water is recycled. You never have to change it. It's, it's quite sustainable in its usage and it's in, in a larger scale, it can actually be a two crop out of one system because you can farm fish mm -hmm. as well. So the farm wall is a micro version of that that we put into cafes, restaurants, schools, workplaces so that we can use it as a bit of a, a showpiece to start the conversation around the future of farming, future of food and also give give patrons, um, employees, you know, school children a really interesting talking piece just to start that conversation around what our, what our future cities are going to look like and how we're going to feed all of these people.
And the difference between aquaponics and aeroponics is that aeroponics grow plants in the air, is that right? With nutrient yeah. mist? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure if the, the push for aeroponics was because of the aerotrophilus and there was, there was a bit of an intentional link between there. But um, aer so aeroponics is, um, is when you grow plants with mist. So you don't use soil or any aggregate medium. The water gets misted and the roots dangle in air and water comes down in increments. Mm -hmm. So they get all of, the, all of the nutrients that they need from that mist. They get the appropriate levels of water without any of the, the mold or the stagnant um, pest issues that result from having still water. And they're very oxygen rich because they're completely exposed to the oxygen at all times. So they have a very, very high production, high volume, high yield. Um, hydroponics is similar, but hydroponics is when they grow in water and then you add the nutrients into the water. And aquaponics, as explained before, is a combination of aquaculture and hydroponics into one. So that's great. a mini, mini science lesson. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Mike, moving on to you. Um, we've talked a little bit about the challenges around, um, around aerospace and, and defence, but from your perspective, what does the, what does the future look like? Uh, I think really for us, we're looking in, more, in a more defence, broader defence context. And um, <clears throat> the pure aerospace element is really going to be driven by demand. And, and, you know, if you look at the programs that have been awarded by government in recent times, mm -hmm. the major platform programs, we've got ships, we've got submarines, we've got F-35s coming on, on task. You know, do we have the throughput that we need to, to have that? So we're looking at a much broader defence perspective. Uh, and when you look at government's commitment that to the $200 billion expenditure over the next 10 years in the, uh, in the investment plan, um, there are a raft of high-level, high-quality systems architecture-based programs that are, are coming down the track, integrated air and missile defence uh, systems, um, integrated battle management systems, uh, communication systems that are going to uh, harness the, the data that's coming. Mm. And people may be familiar with the Triton aircraft that mm. the government's just committed to. The amount of data that that aircraft is going to be able to produce, we haven't yet fathomed how that's going to be managed, how the, how the information is going to be mm. disseminated. So these are the sort of challenges that we're looking at in the future uh, and how do we break that apart. But, but that said, um, we do produce an aircraft called, a small aircraft called Firebird, which mm -hmm. is the baby version, for want of a better term, of, of something like Triton. But the interesting one with that, it's, a, it's an optionally manned uh, equivalent. So it can be autonomous, it can be manned. Uh, I don't know many pilots that want to sit up in the air for 14 hours, but good luck to them. But, um, and there's a real opportunity into the region, um, a strong interest where you know, those countries that can't afford a Triton mm. uh, or don't need the capacity that Triton can offer. Uh, and so we are actively looking at uh, the possibility of manufacturing that in Australia. And mm. that, that could be a re reinvigoration um, of, the, of the aerospace industry mm. to some extent. Um, we also support uh, pretty well all the the non-jet aircraft for Air Force, and that's currently done out of RAF Richmond and, um, and Amberley in Queensland. Uh, so we're, we're trying to harness that energy uh, and use the aerotropolis as the, as the feed for, for that raft of capabilities. And so we're going to need a lot of smart people that, um, 
out of that system. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to the need for smart people mm. um, shortly because I, it's one of the kind of enduring issues, I think, not just in these industries but, but more broadly. But, Simon, I wanted to ask you um, back on the additive manufacturing. Um, the report talks a bit about the opportunity around medical devices, but there are there are so many possibilities around um, uh, additive manufacturing. What are some of the other areas that you think are possibilities for um, in this airport context? Sure, right. Well, yeah, biomedical, very, uh, very uh, exciting, no doubt. Um, but, you know, if we just look at uh, following actually on from, from Mike's point there about this opportunity for reinvigoration, you know, today's uh, aerospace industry in Australia, there are 900 plus companies, 14,000 people working in there, and it's true where the tiering is. That's a $4 billion turnover annually, and it's about a 25% export orientation. So then when you look at the industry reports, so just in, in the business of aerospace itself, um, where you know Airbus is saying that uh, the aircraft industry is going to probably double every 15 years mm -hmm. or so, um, that works out to be another 35,000 planes in, in, in about another 15, 000, uh, 15 years. Uh, that's a lot of metal and composites mm. and everything else flying around up in the sky. Little kind of cities almost, uh, little mm. mini towns uh, flying around there. So um, there's a terrific opportunity for us to move up that tiering uh, and up the value chain. Um, because as I said in my earlier remarks, manufacturing's changing. It's mm. a whole game changer. And the classic Australian uh, narrative of, uh, oh gosh, uh, there's a tyranny of distance here. There's high costs of labor. Well, no, there isn't actually in, in, in additive manufacturing. Uh, the the labour uh, piece is uh, equalised and uh, the distance uh, equation is, is all different as well. So aerospace itself, I think, is a big opportunity for Australia. Um, our oil and gas industry, um, our mining industry, are fabulously profitable uh, kind of industries. And the work that we're doing with GE Additive uh, at uh, the university uh, is also targeting those industries as being ready for uh, a kind of a, a, a complete makeover uh, in the way that they do maintenance, uh, repair, overhaul. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Great. You mentioned the export um, opportunity for aerospace. One of the things that strikes me, Serena, about the um, the, and, and one of the things that comes up in the report is around the export opportunity around the leafy greens. Um, is, that, is that an area that you see as an opportunity um, into Asia for an organisation like Farmall or is it, is it beyond where, where um, you're focusing at this point in time? Do you see it as a future opportunity? Mm. Um, at this point in time, we're not focusing on direct exporting mm. because what, what we do is we, we bring the freshness to the end user through the farm wall, which is mm -hmm. our infrastructure. But interestingly enough, um, we designed our business around the problems surrounding logistics that microgreens yeah. suffer from. Because for those who don't know what microgreens are, they're the very small baby greens that are often garnished on your plate. They kind of look like vegetable confetti. They're <laughs> super high nutrient, up to four times the nutrient density than their fully grown counterparts but all of this nutrient density is lost after they're cut. They don't store well at all, and when they're transported, they come in these plastic pots filled with soil and then plastic wrapping around them, and then there's, there's the cost of storing them in the freezer, and then when they're cut, they also just perish within a number of hours. So having that direct access from 
an airport straight into Asia where you can actually have the microgreens that we grow. This is all just hypothetical mm -hmm. potential for the future. 2026 we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, 2026, not that far away. Um, where they're still actually sown in the growing medium, selling those trays directly, having them in the kitchens in Singapore 34 hours later and having the chefs use them and then the sort of brand equity that Australia has from the fresh produce, the fresh produce that we do have that, you know, places like Singapore and all over Asia already really, really harness that. There's, there's a huge opportunity mm. to, to really take that logistics problem solving to the next level if we do get into the export market. Yep. Great, thank you. Um, and speaking of export opportunities, Mike, from your perspective, you know, one of the things that I noticed that Northrop Grumman Australia has recently um, entered into is an agreement with, um, uh, uh, with the federal government um, around, and, and it mentions specifically working with SMEs and, and engaging with them. And I'm assuming that that's about pushing SMEs into the supply chain, which is one of the challenges that Justin spoke about in the report. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening there and, and how that's working? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the government policy that really talks about what's mm. the Australian industry capability. Mm. That's uh, the one. Opportunity. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a commitment and it's just recently been revised so that any contracts, I think it's now over $4 million, must have what they call an AIC commitment. Yeah. So that's the, um, any company that's awarded a contract over that value must bring or, or try to bring in uh, other local capability into the project, um, acknowledging that not, you know, not every company can do everything. Yeah. Uh, it's all about strategic partnerships. The interesting one uh, that we signed down at Avalon is the first time we've ever done what's called a foreign military sale uh, and revises what's now known as a cooperative program because Australia and the US Navy are, are doing this Triton activity mm. together. So as part of that uh, we have an overarching deed um, that commits us to doing uh, work with and bringing work in for Australian um, companies um, and within that program locally for the six or seven aircraft depending on where the government's going to go with that uh, it's a commitment of about $240 million that will flow back into Australian uh, companies. Uh, and if we're successful there, uh, we're buying six or seven aircraft. Mm. The US Navy is buying 68. Yep. So the opportunity for Australian industry to now be part of the other 68 aircraft yep. is really quite significant. So that $240 million for seven, yep. if you can do a multiplication on that, becomes really quite an opportunity. Yep. And we've just awarded our first contract to uh, a small company called AME down in Victoria uh, that does the, the, the cables. Yep, um, okay. So that's an initial award, so they'll go through the qualification process. And if they're successful, then we'll see those, that, that company rolled out across 70-something you know, uh, yep. aircraft in time. Yep. And so that apl we apply that across the board. We also then have a thing called the Global Supply Chain Deed. Mm -hmm. uh, and the two uh, are separate, but they do actually overlap. So that's where we as a, a large defence prime are looking for uh, Australian industry capability that we can introduce, in our case, into the North American market um, in, into a number of key programs. The key, a, a, a big one for us at the moment is uh, a company out of Bankstown called Quickstep mm -hmm. uh, and it's absolutely astounding what those guys do in the form of, in the way of composite production uh, and they're doing, I've forgotten how many component parts for the F-35, yep. 
um, and that's going to go over the life of the, of the program. It's a significant opportunity. Yeah. So that's the sort of uh, way we approach it, but it doesn't stop at the quick steps. We're always looking yeah. for new partners. Yeah. It's, and it, um, it strikes me that this kind of, and I don't know whether it has been a shift in policy, but that this shift in policy has made everybody kind of reassess how, how does that, you know, um, how does that benefit the business, the local businesses, and how does that then um, push into the, those global supply chains? And, and, and that that benefits not only the Australian organisations um, and, and the Australian economy, but it also benefits the defence needs of, of the US. It, it does. And the, the good thing for us too is we look at how, what else can we export. We talk about doing the system, systems integration. Um, Australia being a, a much smaller mm. enterprise from a defence perspective. I mean, our defence force is smaller than the US Marine Corps yeah, in, yeah. in real terms. So, so we can be more agile. So we have to be more agile. We have yep. to be smarter. Yep. We do things entirely differently. And that's the, next, that's the exportable part that the US yep. hasn't considered. We, we haven't got the ability to throw people at the problem. Yep. We've got to do it cleverer, smarter, faster. Yep, yep. Um, and, and I want to come back to that um, that, that question as well, because it's, um, and maybe we'll start with that now, because you know that one of the enduring challenges that we hear about from at USSE from a range of industry partners is this um, is this issue of getting the right skills and the right skilled people. Um, it, it's what are the key skills that you guys have identified as as the gaps, and and um, and what's the opportunity? And I'm, then I want to come to you, Simon. What's the opportunity to work with universities to to meet that, those kind of needs and fill those gaps? Well, the, the key skills for us, you know, are, are really at the top end of the engineering, mm -hmm. you know, the software engineering, uh, to achieve that the systems architecture. Um, you know, there are a number of programs that Defence has got coming down the track uh, that are if. Treated in isolation will have individual architectures, mm -hmm. and the ability to support those individual architectures uh, is, is extremely challenging. So they're looking for a more holistic approach, mm -hmm. and that's going to require a different level of thinking, uh, and that's where we are collaborating with the likes of you know, our Defence Science and Technology Group, yep. for sure. But we already have existing scholarships in place with a number of universities, mm -hmm. uh, looking at everything from uh, quantum computing through to autonomous systems, uh, and then we have grants in place with I think six or seven universities on yeah. an annual basis, where uh, we're promoting um, people into engineering. So yep. it's all STEM-based considerations yep. as, we, yep. as we go forward. Yeah. So do you want to pick up on that? Because it's, it strikes me that there's this challenge faced by universities, and in the context of um, of this particular piece of research, um, the you know the need, as Justin had mentioned before, to bring together you know government policy universities and industry is really critical. It's one of the areas that I don't think we, you know, that we do so well in Australia consistently. And it'd be great to get your perspective on that because it's heartening to hear from, from Mike that that's working from Northrop. What's your perspective kind of more broadly? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly Mike's company, uh, Northrop Grumman, um, uh, you know, have been really reaching out uh, fantastically in, in that space. But um, I think this is something that the universities in Australia really do take very seriously. And um, I must say at Sydney, uh, you know, we really think we're onto something with this in terms of uh, bringing uh, companies uh, onto our campus, getting our students uh, in, in co-op programs, working uh, over uh, summer scholarships, uh, with the companies um, and already in their undergraduate experience uh, coming uh, up close and, and, and personal with uh, the frontier challenges of, of the companies and typically the, the companies, uh, this might be true in, in, in Mike's experience as well, is you know, we, we're, we're fiercely proud of the terrific students that we have on, on, on these uh, 
uh, Aussie uh, uni campuses, uh, they're by and large, you know, they're, they're, they're superb. And we're constantly um, uh, delighted and, and, and kind of stunned really by their passion and their ability to really make um, great contributions. Uh, so, um, you know, the universities uh, love this business of uh, comparing uh, various criteria and one of the criteria in the, in, uh, in, in the world university rankings is around graduate employability. The Australian universities do, do, do very well. Sydney is a, is a top ten worldwide university in that regard. So um, we know we've got to keep at it, but it's about that student engagement, having companies come to us, spend time on our campuses, um, uh, and uh, give, help us with uh, the course delivery, in yeah. fact, and of course uh, the student engagement um, uh, in the organisations. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting because it kind of flows into another part that was one of the observations in, in this report that's around that research culture and Justin kind of touched on the point that in Australia we're not really so great at, um, you know, we have a strong, um, and we, as Justin mentioned, we've got other um, research that looks at this, you know, we have a strong research culture in Australia but we're not so good at then, um, then commercialising that. Um, do you, do you see that as a real challenge or is it, is it a furphy? Uh, it's, it's, it's vitally important because you know, the university is doing that great and that's where the, the collaboration, the cooperation comes into play. And I think uh, what, what the government's done here is the creation of the Defence Innovation Network, mm. you know, the, the, the eight universities, yeah. but then the truncation and the, and the consolidation of that into the multidarsity as they're describing it. It's going, to, it's going to be huge dividends, I think, in the long term for every industry that's yeah. going to be part of the Aerotropolis because you're going to have this cycle of life and having you know, different, different industries, the universities, the ability to work collaboratively with the universities, shape the courses. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's going to be a standard course, but tweak it a little bit to suit the sort of people that we will need um, or you'll need for, for, the, for the hydroponics or aeroponics, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's that collaboration that's going to build build mm. the base, and I think that that will have huge dividends in the long term. Yeah, great. So, do you have a perspective on that in terms of the um, the um, challenge around commercialising R and D in Australia? Mm. Is it is it something that you guys have come across? We we have started working with with one particular university, but we've we've actually found it quite challenging to get to get the lift off. Yeah. I think we just like to do things really, really quickly, yeah. and um, and that, that has been a challenge. But we do get a lot of university and student engagement, in particular for work experience and yeah. also skills around showing the commercial outcomes of hydroponics, aquaponics. A lot of the time, it's students that are doing things in labs behind closed doors, yeah. and they don't often get to see where their skills are applied and the real meaningful aspect of how it can be integrated into into life and because we do a lot of front customer facing side of things where it's shiny and it's glossy yeah. and they actually get to learn that interaction and see see people interacting with their product and yeah. and having having that engagement around it it's been it's been really good and yeah, also we're a very small company. I can count the amount of employees we have on one hand. <laughs> so whenever people offer to do things for us for free, we always say yes, <laughs> especially really bright students that are always willing to do research. We've got a, a team of um, MBA students from La Trobe University that are 
um, helping us with market analysis. We've got Melbourne Polytechnic horticultural students helping us grow produce in their greenhouses because they need a place for it to go in the end. Yeah. So there, we, we do try and link up with academic institutions as frequent as possible because it is really important to show how these the future of these industries from a very from 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 the get-go from the very beginning yep. yep great thanks Rita Justin last question to you before I open it up very briefly was there anything else in the report that you didn't cover that that has kind of been sparked out of this um, that you that you wanted to that you want to talk about well, or I mean, that struck you as you were doing the research that you didn't get to cover it, or that I cut out of the report when oh, I was editing. Oh, you cut out. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, lots of detail, but but honestly, the, actually, I should thank the, the whole editing staff at USSC. Made I'm always grateful of, for good editors, and they really polished it into much finer form. Um, but no, I mean, really, um, the the size of the market really in the US is, is something that is which we covered in the in the first report. Um, actually, these city pairs that you need to have a functioning airport really don't exist to a great extent in Australia. In the, mm -hmm. There's 178 cities in, in the US with a population of greater than 100,000. And actually, that's what you need for functioning air, or commercial air transport, and then you can build the, um, the industry around it. Um, whereas in, in Australia, basically, you've got the capital cities plus uh, Townsville plus, if you, even if you count, include New Zealand and New Caledonia, you've still only got 12 cities mm. of that sort of size, which actually makes the, 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 the air transport industry more difficult to sustain, even without the addition of, of, of industry. And I think that, that is something that probably doesn't need to be um, downplayed, because um, the reason why state governments in the US have attracted industry to airports I mean, some of them are clear-cut cases, like um, when they built new airports in, in Chicago. Um, there was a political move by the by the mayor of Chicago at the time to actually create industry around the new airport. Similarly, um, in Dulles, in, in Washington, was almost a, a, a white elephant for years um, until some federal legislation around noise actually and and um, forced all the West Coast. Um, uh, aeros uh, 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 airlines to actually land their, their noisy jets in Dulles because they weren't allowed to fly into what is now Reagan, Reagan National. So there were some sort of pieces of, of you know, legislation that actually helped second airports come up. And I think um, in Australia we've had a fairly, well, we hadn't, we don't, apart from uh, Avalon in Melbourne and arguably the Gold Coast serving Brisbane, we don't really have second airports here, so we haven't had that need for kind of government, heavy hand of government intervention. To what extent we can with Western Sydney, I think is, is still questionable because you've got a, a fiercely competitive private entity in Sydney Airport um, Corporation, which will look at any um, government legislation that favours the new airport harshly, as it should, because it's responding to its shareholders' um, demands. Mm. It's a different dynamic, and I think it, it is another dynamic that actually, you know, needs to be considered in the light of looking too closely at the US for, yeah. for examples. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, now I'm going to open up for questions. We'll, we'll start right here. You obviously knew I was coming straight here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Susan Pond from the Smart Sensing Network and a few other places. Mainly focused the panel discussion on 
aero, but it is an aerospace industry. So I wondered if uh, panel members could comment on the opportunities for space in the Western Sydney aerotropolis. Yeah, I was going to break up aero and space. <laughs> <laughs> That's a definitely a question for you to start with, but, I think. Um, yeah, um, Northrop Grumman acquired a, a, an organisation, a large company last year called Orbital ATK, um, which covers everything from outer space to little tiny bullets. We also do the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to replace the Hubble. Um, and we're now bringing those, those new folks that have been integrated into NG into Australia. Uh, so that they have traditionally done, they've done Optus-C and Optus-D satellites. Uh, they've just come up with the new, uh, what they call it, the MEV, uh, which is the new power pack that will inject itself into an existing satellite and extend the life. So it's the, um, we are definitely looking at the opportunity for doing satellite type work in Australia. Uh, and we've had those discussions with the government already as to the sort of facilities that we would be looking at. Um, whether we export the satellites or we launch them locally is, is, is yet to be determined. We don't have that capability, but certainly the investment in the space, and particularly with the New South Wales government signing the MOU with the space agency, uh, is really quite key uh, for us to, to grow that capability alongside the pure aero part of space. Do you want to add to that too, Simon? Sure. Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the business uh, uh, opportunities are there, uh, and if we can move beyond, uh, you know, tiny little CubeSats and have decent-sized, you know, washing machine, washing machine, refrigerator-sized satellites, uh, Australian satellites uh, in in orbits, where we can do hyperspectral uh, sensing, uh, uh, apart from the defence uh, piece that would be there. Uh, you know, bushfire monitoring, uh, the um, ecological monitoring, the agricultural uh, data that that would, would gather for us uh, is, is, is transformational. So, I mean, every time, you know, I, I've seen uh, these business cases uh, put out, they, they look pretty compelling and, mm. and, and, and I think it's going to happen and uh, it's, it's just a matter of, of, of when and, and, and which bodies are going to mm. capture the opportunity. I'd also point the um, audience to a piece of research that came out of the um, <clears throat> that came out of USSC last year that looks at the opportunity um, around space and, and does pick up a little bit on Western Sydney. Did oh, you want that, to add to that, Justin? Sorry. That, 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 that you reminded me that was something you cut out of the report. I did. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but um, when you know, establishing the, the Australian Space Agency, yeah, the launch facility was always going to be um, in the top end because it's close to the equator. But there was a bit of jostling for position around where, where the actual headquarters would be. And I think, you know, like Mike said, you know, the MOU signed between New South Wales and the agency is a sort of consolation prize, I guess. But it does offer lots of opportunity because yeah, there are lots of states, well, there's only three states in Australia actually jostling for that position of actually who will be, who will make all the stuff that's transported up the Northern Territory um, to be, to be blasted off in space. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, yeah there, there are other opportunities. I mean, um, we actually do the what they call the beer keg that goes up and supplies the space station. Oh, yeah. um, it goes up as a beer keg full of goodies and it comes back as a trash can um, because all the, all, the all the rubbish goes in. But it actually has a 12, a, a one year uh, life cycle that can be, you know, in, in this we're bringing it for re-entry. Uh, it can go into another full orbit. Um, so we can put experiments on that. So, so it opens up a whole raft of other opportunities 
for Australian industry as we build this space capability locally. Um, and, you know, everything from school kids mm -hmm. to universities to, to, to get their experiments up into space. Can you grow leafy greens in space? We should try that. I was, I was going to suggest that, yeah, yeah aeroponics in space. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good way for us all to join forces. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we were looking results. for the common link. <laughs> you'll, you'll hopefully get some results from me because you're not going to get it back. Yeah. <laughs> Vaccines is one of the things I know that they're looking at um, developing um, in, a, in the space context, which is, which, is very, which is interesting. Sorry, I saw another hand up over here. Yes, thank you. Um, my question's addressed to, to Justin. Um, thank you for this report, Justin. Uh, my question is quite simply, who is it, uh, I guess, aimed at? And the reason I'm saying that, there's a few things I've noted in here. Um, for instance, the, the bit about investing money, the government, etc. Unfortunately, here in Australia, our successive governments have been notoriously neglectant of manufacturing. If you don't dig it up, they're not interested. Um, and that, to me, I see as a major barrier. I also wondered um, whether your, this was done on sort of academic research versus field research. The reason, the reason being, you may not know this, but Western Sydney Airport sits about 50% in Badgers Creek, 50% in Ludnam. Neither Badgers Creek nor Ludnam have a sewage system. And most of the area has no water either. So therefore, getting the agribusiness thing running requires a lot of infrastructure to be done. And right now, from discussions with this government, no one has any plans to do that, particularly not Sydney Water. So as I say, who is the report, I guess, address that? Well, uh, thanks. And um, unfortunately, the minister's um, left us. Um, but you're right, I mean, but, but you're right, um, these are, I mean, the, the work the US Study Centre really does is, is looking at some of the, the best case <coughs> scenarios in the US and, and examining how they might apply um, in the Australian context. But um, all those three business, all those three export opportunities that, that, um, that, I, that I mentioned or that I highlight all have their challenges. Um, and I think I graded them kind of from hard to, to, to easiest. Um, and um, intensity, high intensity, you know, precision agriculture, whatever, lies in that in that middle, really, for that reason. Because actually, there aren't the systems there. Very poor soil quality. And yes, you're right. I mean, I live in eastern Sydney, so I refer to it as Badgerys Creek, even though I know it's more complex than that. Um, but yes, I mean, I mean, the Farmers Association highlighted the fact that actually it's not very arable land anyway. Um, this is why traditional agriculture couldn't couldn't work. But this is where some of this forward thinking about actually, yes, if we could put together a plan and actually find the investors to actually build these facilities, then actually there could be a way to convince Sydney Water or somebody else to actually supply it. But actually the thing, and I'm not the, the expert on the panel, but a lot of these, these PONIC systems, um, Hydro, Aqua, um, Aero, actually have much greater uh, efficiency, water efficiency, than traditional agriculture. So actually, you're not in, not injecting as much water as if you were doing broad acre or anything like that. So the return, and if you can use aquaponics, you're actually reusing that water anyway, which is re-oxidizing re itself. So yes, I mean, th these are forward, so the short answer is, this is a forward-looking piece saying, work is underway to attract these, to attract industry, as yet undefined, to Western Sydney Airport. These are three possible areas if governments, both federal and state, 
and to a lesser degree councils, were forward-thinking enough, and I take your point that they're perhaps not, but we do have a four-year electoral cycle in New South Wales that once we can get this federal election out of the way, you know, is a fairly good clear run. And, you know, things might be possible, but I accept that, you know, if you're a command economy like China, you could probably say, do it, and yeah. politics gets in the way here. But... <laughs> Are there any other questions? Yes, over here. Thank you. Oh, sorry, microphone's coming. Hi, Justin. Um, you spoke a little bit about the competition between states or for subsidies. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the experience in the political economy of those sorts of subsidies in the states? I know, for example... In the US or...? In the US, yes. So in, uh, in, I know, for example, there was quite a lot of blowback for the uh, subsidies that were given to Amazon in New York and uh, whether um, there's a way that you can sort of de-risk it for the public. Yeah, look, I mean, it's um, the Amazon one was very high profile. Um, it captured the imagination. It was, you know, um, high... It was running in the press a lot. Plus, there's a, obviously a dispute between uh, President Trump and um, Jeff Bezos, so they kind of had a you know personal element as well. And you're right, the, I mean, the New York... Um, uh, State, con um, state government in, uh, in Albany did actually reject part of the proposed package. And in Virginia, they uh, uh, passed it, holus bolus. But there were some more interesting ones, if you leave Amazon aside, which is high profile, like Nike in, um, in Oregon, actually were, they allegedly used a tactic of saying that, we, they, that Nike wanted to relocate out of Oregon and find corporate headquarters elsewhere. And the state government in Oregon actually gave golden handcuffs and kind of matched the deal that I think, I think Illinois was offering um, and actually matched it and bettered it. Um, and to the, to the citizens of Oregon, this was seen as a very good deal because they had huge sort of pride in Nike as a brand being headquartered there. So it all gets quite mixed up in politics, as you'd imagine. Um, the, the last paper looked at specifically the, um, the dailies um, in Chicago, um, father and son, who ploughed lots and lots of money into, uh, into, um, into O'Hare Airport and, you know, became, and cemented its place as the, at one stage the busiest airport in the world. And a lot of that was use of city and state government and all really locking in democratic um, support at a Congress level and at a, at a city government level for, for decades. So there definitely is that vote-buying power of investing in airports, as long as the citizens believe that it was a good deal. And I think I mentioned um, and in the report, there's two examples, Louisiana, um, which invested in an in a oil pipeline, which I think broke down at about $37 million per job, which the citizens of Louisiana thought possibly was misspent. Um, and then Rhode Island um, spent $75 million luring uh, games, uh, computer games manufacturing, uh, computer games software company from Washington, sorry, from uh, Massachusetts to Rhode Island. And then, of course, the company went bankrupt and Rhode Island was left with a poor return on investment compared to what it had in the two years that it was operational. So there are some, there definitely are some bad case scenarios um, and it, it, it is very much a case of vote 
buying or job buying, um, and it's just much more naked um, in America than it is here. Now, I'm, I'm conscious that um, we're now standing between you all and a drink. So, um, um, if anybody's now brave enough to um, ask a question, please uh, let me know. But um, given that I see no hands, I think all that remains is for me to thank Justin very much, to thank the panel, Simon, Serena and Mike, um, and to invite you all to um, please take a copy of the report, please read it. Um, the audience for these kind of reports are both people like you, the educated public, um, and also government policymakers and um, and uh, we hope that they hear our voices. And um, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Please come and join us for a drink and we can continue the conversation. And thank you very much. Thank you.